Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that takes a look at the people behind the plans, showcasing the work, life, and stories of planners from all across the profession. I'm your host, Courtney Kashima, founder and principal at Muse Community Design, a planning and public engagement studio in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a longtime member of the American Planning Association. Our guest today is David Fields, AICP, principal with Nelson Nygaard, a transportation firm with multiple locations. David is a transportation planner based out of San Francisco and a former chair of APA's transportation division. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Courtney. Great to be here. Now, have you always been a planner? I think deep down, all planners have always been planners. Uh, When I was young, my grandfather, who lived in New York City, he would take me for the day and say, we can go anywhere you want to go today, but you have to figure out how we're going to get there. So we would open up the subway map and open up a bus map. And thinking back, I know we went way out of the way many times. He never said anything about it. We just had a great time exploring the city. And I think that's what put me on my path. So my follow-up question was going to be, how did you find your way to transportation planning, which uh, sounds like your grandfather was a big influence, but I'm sure there's more to it. There is, but it still involves my grandparents. So they uh, were immigrants from Eastern Europe. They moved to the Lower East Side, where their family lived very close, a few blocks away. Uh, They lived there for many, many years. And when I knew them, they were getting older. Um, They traditionally would take the subway or take the bus anywhere they wanted to go. My grandfather would go to work every day. They would go to medical appointments. They would go see shows on Broadway. They'd go to a museum. But as they got older, they couldn't walk down the subway steps. So then they would go as far as the bus could take them. And they would do the things they needed to do, like a doctor's appointment. But they stopped going to museums, which were harder to get to, or to the movies. And then a a few years later, they actually couldn't walk up the steps of the bus to get on the bus. So they would take a taxi to go to a doctor's appointment, but mostly they would just walk within their neighborhood. And then it got to the point that they couldn't cross the big street at the edge of their neighborhood. So their lives kept shrinking and shrinking, not because of anything uh, that was their fault, but because we weren't serving them right. Um, And so it got to the point where they stopped going to the better grocery store across the big street. They'd go to the other one that was just closer and easier. Um, And as I saw this, I realized we could fix this. This is totally within our control. They're missing out, and the city is missing out on them. I decided I was going to build places where my grandparents would be happy. Wow. I think everyone can relate to that. So how old were you, would you say, when this sort of came together and influenced, you know, a career? Uh, I didn't know it was a profession, but it dawned on me when I was about 9 or 10. Um, When I was in college, I took an elective in map making, and my professor called me in one day and said, you seem to really like this. You know, you can do this as a career. I said, I don't think I can make money making maps as a career. And he said, no, 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 you're right. You're not that good. You can't make money (laughs) making maps for a career. Um, But there's actually a science behind it. Geography is uh, the science of people interact with their place. And you seem to really connect with place, which I always felt like I have. And that's what put me on the the official path. So you discovered, not discovered planning, but you came to be a planner through geography? Yes. Okay. How do you think that influenced um, the way you approach planning? Um, So I definitely see uh, different communities, their history, their built form, and their transportation systems as really big guiding forces in our day-to-day life. And a lot of people may not recognize it, um, but if it's easy to walk, we walk more. 
Um, if we have an interesting street to walk down, we walk down that more. Uh, I do a lot of work in New Orleans, one of my favorite cities, and the history, uh, the different architecture, the walkability of the place ends up with a lot of different patterns for people's day-to-day life than in other cities. Yeah, I grew up in a small town where if you were walking, someone would pull over and ask you if you need a ride. So <laughs> that's kind of the other end of the spectrum, I guess. Um, now, I just learned that you have participated in planning on five continents. So I know you mentioned New Orleans and New York, but give us a little bit of information about working across the globe. It's fascinating. I love going to new places and learning their history, but just hearing what they prioritize, how they got to where they are today, and where they want to see their future. Uh, So when we worked in um, a city in United Arab Emirates uh, called Al Ain, it's where the historic um, uh, oasis is. uh, That's where it grew up around. They told us we are okay developing. We understand that that's in our future, but we want to see our sky. That was very, very important to them. They didn't want tall buildings. They didn't want to to break that up. They wanted to feel their connection to their place. And that's something very different. You don't hear that in many other places. So going and really listening to people and then being able to develop something that will work for them is very rewarding. So you've talked about creating places through transportation choice. I know that's something you're very committed to. How does that work at different scales? Uh, So the first, to explain the idea, um, I do believe great places provide transportation choice. So if all we do are build roads, it's very difficult to do anything but drive. And if you can't afford the entrance fee, the price of a car, you're, you're out of luck. You don't get to participate in all the things the community has to offer. It's difficult to get a job. It's difficult to go to school. It's difficult to go to a park. It's hard to, you know, all the things we want to do. So we use what we build. So we want to make sure what we build is everything. And it's not saying don't build roads. But when you build roads, make sure that people can walk and bike and transit can get there also. And, and this works on multiple scales, as you were saying. Uh, to me, it all starts with the walkability part of it. Because at some point, you're going to get out of your car, you're going to get off the train, you're going to park your bike, and you're going to need to walk some part of it. And the entire length of your trip should be accessible by walking. That works really well on the street level, on the person-to-person level. It also um, helps us look people in the eye, which we can't do when we're driving. When you walk down a street, you're at eye level with almost everybody, and your proximity, you're very close. When you're in a car, you're surrounded by metal, you're further away, I think we lose a little bit of our humanity when we drive. Um, So the different scales work really well, uh, obviously on on the street level and on the small community level, but then if we can start stringing nodes of places people can walk together, well, then we have places transit can serve really well, they become really good biking distances, and this all kind of starts to feed on itself and starts to create bigger regions. Now, I've seen you in action at community meetings, and even though I know you're passionate about transportation choice, uh, something I really appreciate is that you're not a zealot. I've seen you, and you don't preach to people. Uh, You really make sure the conversations are contextual. Can you share why that's important to you? Uh, One of my first jobs as a planner was with a, a small planning firm on Long Island called JAC Planning, and uh, Jean Sullender, she's an excellent public involvement specialist, uh, and she taught me everything I know about it, with the first point being, you have to be there to listen. 
if you just want to tell them what you want, then you don't even need to be there. You can go do that in a room, you can write a plan, you can make a pretty drawing, but if you're trying to hear what the community wants, you have to actually hear it. You have to stop, you have to help them identify their goals, and you may need to facilitate that conversation because a lot of people have never been asked the question before about what is it that we're trying to get to. It's not necessarily about moving a car fast, it's about getting home. It may not be about um, a, a level of service analysis, it's about what, are, what trip are they trying to do? Are they trying to get to work? Are they trying to get to school? Is there a street they can't cross? So to, to facilitate and hear what they're trying to get to and then translate that into a transportation component, that feels very rewarding. You hit on something really important, I think. Um, I've been at my fair share of, of community meetings and have definitely seen where people aren't, being, aren't used to being listened to. Um, what do you do when you walk in and you sort of realize that that's the situation? How do you get people talking and realizing that their input matters? It, it can be a stretch sometimes. Um, we have done many, many different plans and planning processes where either the result was nothing like what they talked about during the, the process or maybe it was one public meeting where somebody gave up and gave a PowerPoint and there were four questions and then everybody went home. That's not really involvement. That's just notification. People get burnt out by that. So you have to start by building some trust, um, communicating in a way that people are comfortable with. Um, so uh, I'm originally from New York, and now I live in San Francisco, and I frequently am told, you know, you're going to come off as a little maybe big city. So then I really need to talk to people at the agency, local stakeholders, uh, find a partner locally who can help me understand what's been going on, what is the context they're coming from, and then walk around, learn what's in the place already. Nothing worse than coming in and, and talking about things that don't exist in their community. People will immediately dismiss you, and they should. It's our job to be able to talk their language. So a little bit of trust building, a little bit of comfort level, um, giving people the chance if there's something big on their minds, let them tell you. Let them get up and say, you know what, I know your project is this, but this is also a big issue related to that. You may not know about it. You might have probably not going to be able to fix it for them, but just understanding the context and hearing what they have to say goes a very long way. Definitely. Now, I watched with some interest uh, your project in Cleveland, um, how you took a difficult situation but had it successfully, successfully implemented, and now it's really been transformative. Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, so the project you're talking about is Public Square in downtown Cleveland, and a little bit of background. It was a team effort of so many people, and I feel great uh, pride in it, but I want to give uh, the proper credit to all the different people who were on it. I, this is not a David project. This was uh, the city and the, the transit authority there, the RTA, um, and uh, Land Studios, um, uh, James Corner Field Operations, as, as well as us, and we all got together and got something very good done, and we're very proud of it. Um, Cleveland is a place, obviously, a very long history. It's got great bones. Uh, it had this square in downtown that had roads bisecting it in both directions. So instead of one big square, it was four small quadrants um, and with traffic going in all directions. Um, the decision was made to see whether there was a way to knit that back together and make more of a public space. Um, some of the issues and the ones we tackled mostly were what's going to happen to all that traffic that's driving up and down the streets and there's 
cars and the vehicle traffic, and then there was all the buses that go through there because um, it's the primary point to transfer between the bi- different bus lines because it's right downtown. There are also a lot of people walking and biking there. So we did a lot of analysis. We figured out a lot of different options. Um, there were options to close one of the roads, not the other road, to close both of the roads. Um, it took a very long time bringing people along step by step to show, yes, we can close individual segments and people will still be able to travel. The world's not going to collapse. The transportation system's still going to work. And having the greater good of a public place probably it adds some credit uh, to letting you, letting you do other things. Um, so what ended up happening is the design left the east-west street open to buses. All vehicle traffic wasn't going to be allowed on the east-west street, and the north-south street would be to- closed completely. Um, after the design was done and the construction was built in time uh, for the Republican National Convention uh, last summer, um, and in time for their championship basketball parade, uh, which we're very proud of, um, it was still unsure whether buses would be allowed to go through on that open street. There were concerns about uh, safety, about people, kids playing nearby and maybe not realizing it was still street, maybe security concerns. Uh, but the people of Cleveland got together and said, yes, we still want this. We, we believe in our bus system. We believe this is important to it. We believe the square can still be a great place with a slow bus line, uh, a slow speed bus routes coming through there, recognizing that there'd be a lot of pedestrians. So the street's now open, and the park is just great. Uh, If you ever get a chance to go to Cleveland, go down and see Public Square. Uh, It's on my list. So except for one interesting year that I lived in China, I've lived my entire life in the Midwest. You, by contrast, recently moved from New York City to San Francisco. What are the most interesting differences between those two coasts? It's been really eye-opening in a lot of different ways. Uh, I was born in New York. I lived there most of my life. Uh, I I feel like I know it very, very well. San Francisco is a city I went to many, many times, and, and it's beautiful, and I like it a lot, but it is forcing me to use parts of my brain I feel like I haven't had a chance to use in a while just to learn a new place on a very day-to-day level. Um, They have preserved their open space, a long history of it, much better than we have in New York. There's access to parks and beaches and and hikes very, very close by. Um, But what I'm learning um, from the planning side is that These cities, without even knowing it, work together really well to continue to challenge each other. They learn from each other. Every time uh, somebody has an idea, they're looking around for best practices, and their peer cities tend to be New York and San Francisco, Chicago, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, and they push each other in the best of ways, whether it's uh, complete street design or parking management or just recognizing uh, that the cities will thrive when people can walk there, they encourage each other, and the more each one is a success, the more the next one gets to build on it. Um, So as opposed to comparing it and saying, you know, this one is better for this reason, I love the fact that that I've got these two great best practices in my pocket now. Interesting. I've seen you speak about parking management, and when you do, you make it so clear, so obvious, and so fact-based Why is it so hard for communities to get on board? Parking is always a very emotional issue. Uh, 
mostly, I believe, it's because it's been pretty free for most people for their whole lives. They never even think about paying for parking unless they're in downtown. Um, and when they do, you know, the cost is the issue, and parking meters are difficult because nobody carries quarters with them, and, and they have to run back at 59 minutes past to, to make sure they... It's always very stressful, as opposed to a system that says, we want to open up parking spaces on the street, and we're going to do that by metering it, but we're going to make metering it as easy for you as possible. You can use a credit card, you can use your phone, you can use cash, and it's not up at the top of the hour. It's if you want to stay longer, that's okay, you'll just pay for that. And so we want to open up the spaces in a way that makes it as easy for people to use the system as possible. People get angry when they can't figure out what to do, when the system we put in place is difficult or just makes their lives harder. I think our job as planners is to take the right management approach and make it very, very user-friendly for people. What are some of the benefits that you've seen from communities who get this? Um, So when communities start to realize that it's more important for many cars through the course of a day to park in front of their shops than one car for 12 hours, they get more people shopping in their stores, which means they sell more things, they generate more tax revenue, those people tell other people There are places for people to come and park all day long, but it tends not to be right in front of the store on the main street. What do you think the field of planning is getting right these days? What inspires you? Uh, A few different things. Uh, One, our commitment to public involvement, what I was talking about before. There are so many great techniques, and every day I look around, I'm hearing about new things. The the, uh, utilization of technology, of apps, of better ways to communicate within a public meeting or for the people who can't come to a public meeting. We've really embraced that, that that is our responsibility. I'm not a tech expert. I rely on other people to, to help me find new tools and new opportunities. But everything is on the table, and that's just very, very refreshing. Um, the other thing, and this is more transportation-related, is we've recognized that people need to walk. And I know I've said it a few times already, but without this, we can't build our great places. Um, so to dedicate more space, to make it a safe crossing, to let it be not just in the core of our Main Street, but every form, suburban developments in, in more rural areas, people recognize that they're going to get outside and they need to be safe walking. What would you like to see happening more in planning? Um, I'd like us to be better trained in understanding politics because it is one of my weakest strengths. I know what I believe in, and I know what I'm trying to get to, and I can help our communities. Uh, But I have a hard time when there's uh, a long political dispute or or factions, and and I feel like I'm not the person they put up on the stage to have a political debate um, because they know we're trying to get their project uh, supported. Um, And maybe that's something we need to be a little better at, uh, just to understand the sensitivities or the vocabulary, you know, what are the right talking points so it doesn't shift into a political discussion and we can stay in our planning process. Yeah, I think it's interesting as a consultant, uh, you're usually aware when it's election season and all projects grind to a halt. (laughs) I don't think that's true in some other industries. And I don't think our schools uh, necessarily prepare planners for the political environment in which they operate. So interesting to think about what that might look like. 
What's the best story you have about someone trying to understand what an urban planner is? I feel like every planner has had to explain at a cocktail party or family reunion what exactly it is that they do. Do you have a story along these lines? I do, and it goes back to that work in Abu Dhabi uh, where uh, for a long time the planning process was very top-down. They did very good things, but there there was no real public involvement, and, and for this process... Uh, they decided that they were going to hold a real public process and there'd be public meetings and we would go out and talk to people, there'd be stakeholder interviews. And because it was not part of the culture and part of the history, the public didn't really know what to do with us. They didn't understand, were we there to ask them how to design a bridge or were we, uh, why, what were we going to do with their information? You know, was was there another motive behind it? And we had to very uh, gently and multiple times say, you know, we, we just want to ask you your opinion of things or where do you actually travel and no, we're not going to follow you or we, we just want to have a conversation so we can create the thing that you want to help you live your lives better. And the whole first public meeting was all a trust exercise. And finally, by the second one, they started to get the idea a little. But uh, the term urban, urban planner was still relatively new to them. Now, I like to joke that planners love acronyms. What's your favorite acronym? So my favorite acronym is BOMUP. And I credit this to my mother who, when I graduated uh, with my master's degree in urban planning, she made me a little nameplate for my office that says David Fields BOMUP, which nobody knows what it means, but it's David Fields Bachelor of Arts, Master of Urban Planning. I love it. Are there any planners out there who inspire you, ones we should make sure and talk to perhaps? I am so lucky that how many people out there have inspired me uh, in different ways in my career. Uh, so Gene Selander, who I mentioned earlier, one of my first bosses, uh, the people I work with now at Nelson Nygaard, I mean, they're experts in their field, and they're very passionate about what they do. Uh, so Jeffrey Tumlin, Paul Jewell, uh, uh, Jeff Slater, uh, Tim Payne, uh, Sabe Bent, many of them are here at the conference. Uh, we what we do we do because we're passionate about it i don't know many planners who go into this for the fame and the fortune we tend not to make millions of dollars and maybe the public could name three or four famous planners we do this because this is what we want to do that we really think we can make a difference in the world so finding those people who can point you in the right direction who can say yeah if you do this right that's going to be the satisfaction you get out of it And to me, that's wonderful, and I've been lucky enough to find those people. We are here recording at the National Planning Conference in New York City. Um, You spent a great deal of your life in New York City. Where are the not-to-miss places, the ones that you wouldn't read about in the guidebook, but whether you're a planner or just a lover of cities, uh, where do you recommend people check out? So the first one will be in the guidebook, but it's often overlooked because people think they know it. Go to Grand Central Terminal, uh, where Metro North comes in and out. It is one of the most beautiful train stations in the country. Uh, It is inspiring. It is uh, big and airy, and on a sunny day, the sun streams in, and they've added a market, which adds a lot of foot traffic, whether you're getting on a train or not. Um, And you, you can just stand there and watch the flow of people. And to me, people are happy there. They come earlier than their train to spend more time in a train station. To me, that's a success. Um, Right nearby, I'm a big fan of Bryant Park, which had a huge transformation after the 80s. Um, It was redesigned, and it's well-programmed, and it's maintained. uh, And 
they they have this program where there are chairs out and they're not chained or anything. You take them to whichever part of the park you want. And on a sunny day, you can just kind of watch the chairs follow the sun because people want to be in the sun. So at different parts of the day, the chairs are in different places. And it's just kind of fun to watch. Um, and then the neighborhoods of New York City. Um, and, and they're storied and historic, the Lower East Side and Chinatown, Little Italy, neighborhoods in Brooklyn. Um, one of my favorites is looking at the view of Manhattan from uh, the Brooklyn Promenade in Brooklyn Heights. Because the best view of Manhattan you can't see in Manhattan. You need to go across the river and see it. And it's just a beautiful place to stand. David, I want to thank you for speaking with us today. I'm inspired by your work and your passion. Thanks for giving us a few tips on how to think about how we get around and what to do when we're visiting New York City. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For more information and to hear past episodes, visit planning.org podcast. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast? Send them to podcast at